Welcome to The Recurring Plot, presented by Curb and Turf. On this show, we interview agritourism farmers, authors, leaders, and influencers who share their insights on growing and monetizing your agritourism business. Here's your host, Dustin Reed. Hi, welcome to The Recurring Plot, where we decode the secrets of recurring income from your property. I'm your host, Dustin Reed, and today we're joined by Frank Rolf. With over 30 years of experience, Frank is a successful investor and educator. Today, he's going to share his insights on RV park and mobile park investing. So whether you're a seasoned pro or new at real estate, we're going to give you the ins and outs and basically one of the leaders in this industry. And hopefully we're going to gain a lot of information and soak up your experience here today. And so I appreciate you being with us today, Frank. Thanks for having me. So those that may not know you from our audience, and I, I've researched you, you're huge in this in this space. Could you give a brief introduction or a brief history of your background and how you got started in, within commercial real estate in, in the industry? Sure. Yeah, no problem. I went out to uh, Stanford University, class of 82, got out a year earlier than my peers, got out in three years. I was going to go to business school back then, back in the late 70s, early 80s, a good business school application to a good business school like a Stanford or a Harvard or something like that. Your essay would be a discussion of a business that you had owned or currently were owning. So I decided I would spend the one year that I got out early trying to start a business for my application. So I asked around people, what would you do if you were to start a business for one year and then one immediately liquidated? And I got lots of really stupid responses from many people. Most people congregated around opening a sandwich shop, which is stupid. You'd have to rent space and at least be more than a year in length. So one, one, one adult said, hey, how about billboards? I knew absolutely nothing about them, but I went into that. At the end of the first year, I had three billboards. I should have maybe then sold them and got on to graduate school. But instead, I had seven more pending. So I went a second year, a third year. You know how that story goes. 14 years later, I'm the largest owner of billboards in Dallas-Fort Worth. And so I then sold that off and started buying up mobile home parks, which I did randomly because I had built two billboards on a mobile home park in Dallas called Glenhaven. And when I sold the business and started calling my landowners, trying to get ideas to start a new business, that guy on, on one phone call said, I'll sell you the park right now for 400 grand with $10,000 down. I'll carry it all non-recourse. So I thought, well, why even proceed on calling more people? Sounds intriguing. Love the fact I only have 10,000 at risk. And that's how I got in the business. Since buying that first park, I then bought another and another and another. I uh, joined forces with my old competitor, Dave Reynolds, in 2010. And today we're one of the top 10 largest owners in the U.S. So we own both mobile home parks. We also own RV parks. We own hybrids between mobile home and RV parks. And, and, I love that you're able to, I, I, I hear that quite a bit where they start off doing their, their business and it just ends up kind of snowballing or leads to other, other things. Like you were saying, like when you're initially going into billboards, then, then you were able to make that shift into mobile, mobile home parks, a little bit about the differences that you had to learn from going from, it sounds like you're scaling. So you're going from something that takes not so much, it's not so much space. I'm sure there's some clearance and stuff that you have to have for obviously for billboards, but there's going to be a lot more space that takes up for your mobile home. So what kind of things that you had to learn for that learning curve or get into that industry? 
Sure. Well, most people are spoiled today because today, if you want to do something, you go to YouTube and watch a video, <laughs> or you go to Wikipedia and find out how it works or something. But back back in the day, we didn't have that stuff. So back in the uh, '80s, if you wanted to start a business, you just jumped in and did it, and you either sank or swam. You either were a success or a humongous failure. You were either humiliated or you felt good about yourself. So that's how the billboard business went. My attraction to the billboard business was the same as a mobile home park business. Both are basically regulated by the government. So I've been a big believer from the onset of the Warren Buffett moat concept. You need a big old moat to protect your business from competition. So I've never had any interest in businesses that had freedom of competition. How un-American does that sound? So I'm the completely against capitalism when it comes to actually owning something. And so billboards are regulated by the federal government under what's called the Highway Beautification Act. You cannot build a billboard anywhere in the United States unless you have a permit from either a state, county, or city, and they only allow them in certain zonings and spacings. So that's what's got me into the into the billboard business. And I basically jumped in there, not having any idea what I was doing. I was endlessly humiliated with people who would ask me things like, so how many billboards do you currently own? When the answer was none, or they would ask me technical questions like, so exactly where does the billboard go in the land? And I had no idea because I hadn't built one yet. So once I got over those hurdles, though, once, once you learn a certain level of stuff, you start getting dangerous. And so when I started getting dangerous with knowledge, then I got more competitive and then things just started falling into place. And that's why my first year I only had three. By the end of the second year, I had 10. And I just kept going up exponentially so that by the end, the end of the movie, I had 300. So I had averaged building two billboard faces a, a month for 14 straight years so but but initially it was really really tough and then when i segued from that into mobile home parks again it predates the internet so it was like here's a mobile home park try not to go bankrupt with it the 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 mobile home park i had was losing two grand a month when i got it but i rapidly figured out how to save two thousand i turned off the cable television to it because he had been providing free cable to everyone, which cost almost exactly 2000 a month. And so the ones who needed cable got their own individual subscriptions. The other ones didn't, but I'd stopped the negatively cash flow and then just kept going from there. But basically, you know, the modern generation, life is so easy, but for older people, it was all school of hard knocks. And so you would learn from your own happenstance, pitfalls, and then later you would talk to other people also and say, hey, what have you learned about this? How does this work? A benefit that we had in the old days compared to you modern people is that we had access to what's called the greatest generation, which are the people who basically build America. So all of my mobile home parks were bought mostly from the greatest generation, and all of my, all of my billboard landowners were greatest generation people, and those are the people who were born in the 1920s or, or even earlier that all fought World War II, that, that, that's that group. And they, are, they were extremely sharing of their knowledge. So I could talk to a greatest generation person and say, hey, I'm new to, to mobile home parks. How does it work exactly? And they'd say, oh, let me show you. They give me a tour of their park and tell me all about what they had learned, how it all went. So that was one benefit we had. To be honest with you, I would rather have the greatest generation folks over the, over the YouTube any day because they weren't trying to hawk stuff, sell stuff. They were just telling you how it was because they believed in a higher purpose than just, you know, life and death. So, but that, that's kind of how I learned it.
No, that's great. That's and that's amazing that you're able to basically have you know these mentors or people that you're looking up to that are able to offer that information. And I agree because a lot of times it's just a lot of information is just easy to to come by now, and and usually it comes at a cost or some you have to buy into something or you have to you know and and that's a great lesson because I think a lot of people, if you're just to catch them one on one or build a relationship, most people would be open to, to answering just simple questions or cause that shows an interest of what, you know, you have an in, a vested interest in what they're doing. And most people generally like talking about what they're doing and like talking right. about themselves. And, and, and generally that's going to help you build that relationship and build those connections. And I'm sure those connections uh, obviously served you well, just because you're able to build off the same generation that was able to help you and, and get you in, into that same and get, get your foot in the door, basically. I'd imagine that would be the hardest part in all this just because you mentioned that no one was really taking you seriously and, and what, what, and then you became dangerous, which I, I kind of like that, that word because it is something where knowledge is power and you're able to use that knowledge and, and build an X, you know, basically, you know, where you're able to exponentially grow your, your business and only that, but you have these verticals so you're only, I, I'm sure you can only grow so much in Dallas, Dallas, Fort Worth area. Then you moved, I assumed you moved in different markets. Cause I read that you're also in, you did LA. Is that correct? Correct. That's also correct. Yep. And so how, how, how were you able to move into different, different areas or what, what does that look, what did that look like and how were you able, how were you able to do that? Well, see, that was easy because once you learn how the business works, you can move around geographically at ease because it's a replica of what you already did. Right. It's, it's kind of like, you know, imagine opening a chain of restaurants, right? The very first, first Ruby Tuesday is the hard one, but after you've got it down, you have an operations manual, you know how it works. It's just right. a matter of finding locations to build the next Ruby Tuesday. So that's how it was. By the time I'd gone out to Los Angeles, I already understood billboards like the back of my hand. I was, I, I was very fluid, but when I went into Los Angeles, I was on one, single deal bear in mind so what that was is i found a an abandoned billboard company in los angeles which you would never find today believe it or not for people who who, who weren't around during it in the early 90s la was completely wiped out i mean you you had no solvency at all i couldn't even find an advertiser in la who could pay a bill other than topless bars nude clubs and people who sold pagers. I remember going up and down Rodeo Drive back in the early 90s, meeting with all these people who are now famous, like the guy with the crazy men's store. I'm blanking on his name even. And they would tell you, look, dude, I'm almost completely broke. I cannot even cover my rent. It, it was nothing but unhappiness. If you took the, got out the newspaper, because this is back when people sold homes in the newspaper, the homes for sale section in Los Angeles was probably about an inch thick with nothing but foreclosures. So... I entered the LA space at a time where you couldn't give billboards away. And that was the deal was I got this company for almost nothing. The challenge was, could I bring it back to life? I was able to, it nearly killed me, but I got, got that done. But, but it was, it was still easier than anything I'd done in Dallas. That's, and so that's interesting just because I'm sure in the nineties and during LA, there's a lot going on. You had, I mean, there's a lot of social, Things going on at that time with Rodney King and everything else. Yeah, I, had, I, I was there in the heart of the riots. In fact, one of, one of the billboards I had was burned in the riots. Oh wow! So I, I, w I was there for the whole 
the whole deal. And, but, you know, it, it's it, history cycles. I mean, it's not a lot different than the George Floyd riots that came in later. And we are a country that always has en- endless upheaval, right? Uh, that upheaval is actually what creates opportunities. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I learned from the billboard business because I was able to double my portfolio during the Texas savings alone crash. That probably the best thing when you're trying to get into a business is is the fact that we do have periodical uh, recessions, depressions. It levels the playing field. It makes the small guy just as just as dangerous as the big guy. Right, and that's probably important. What I mean, I've heard the saying "cash is king" or you know, making sure you're liquid kind of on a lot of these things because then you have it presents a lot of opportunities for you to invest or for you to actually start entering into the business, and that's kind of what we're dealing with now, you know, whether it's high inflation or stagnation, whatever, you know, whatever we're looking at right now or, and, and that's kind of what you're talking about just because history tends to repeat itself. And I've noticed that in 2008, when we had the housing crash and everything else, a lot of people were able to get into that market. And then it's just, it's just crazy how cyclical a lot of this stuff is. And a lot of people just don't, a lot of people just don't learn from they tend to learn the hard lesson. Right. And I feel like some people just don't uh, realize the opportunities that can present themselves that they're smart with their money or smart with the opportunities that, that are, are there available to them. Yeah. But, but see, the problem I think is that, you know, back when I was at Stanford, I had a class in psychology professor <laughs> said there are only two things that make people do something. Number one is to be attracted to the opposite sex and the other is to be superior to everyone else. So if you go from that basic tenet, then people are always driven to consume because material items are what get you in both both cases where you want to go. Right. So people are always going to spend at the limits that banks allow them to spend. And so that's why we have these cycles is because people with unbridled uh, lending go nuts. And yep. so normally when you have these recessions, it's a credit issue. It's not a consumer issue. People are willing to just spend endlessly and why not? You only live once, so why not spend it endlessly? I mean, I can't find any fault in the basic premise of trying to be superior and attractive. It doesn't sound too too terrible, but that's why we're always going to have these contractions as a people. They can't help themselves. They just go right. nuts, and they even do it even in, in, in the world of real estate, right? I mean, you mm-hmm. have all these people who build all these office towers, which are now probably worthless. You know, what was the concept? There's no, there was no... No moat at all. You could build a building anywhere you wanted. Everybody did. They massively overspent. They never made any money with that stuff. And yet, who is it to fault? Really kind of lenders, because lenders gave them $500 million here and there to build these office towers and no one needs. Right. And so, yeah, it's, I mean, America, again, that's what makes life interesting is the fact we're not one straight line. We have peaks, we have valleys, and that's what creates opportunity. And going back to what you said a minute ago, when you say cash is king, you know, ca- cash really doesn't get you everywhere. Like when I started off in the billboard business, cash was not what made me dangerous. What made me dangerous was knowledge. Mm-hmm. And what also made me dangerous was kind of uh, patience slash persistence, right? Because when you're small and you get into something and you want it bad enough, you are much more dangerous than somebody who is bigger and well-funded and and doesn't have your level of intensity. And you see that all the time every weekend in football or <laughs> any sport, right? I mean, you have Spud Webb. How tall was he? Like 4'10", <laughs> dunking the ball. Right. So, you know, it, is, it isn't all about the cash. I learned that in the billboard business that, mm-hmm. that you know, you, if you want something bad enough, you can do it. 
The question right. is, do you want it bad enough? Yeah, because that, that's one of the reasons why being small is better is because a lot of times if you're a bigger company or a bigger investment group, or whatever it is, like you have, there's a lot of red tape you have to cut through, a lot of bureaucracy, even within your own company, just to get to the yes men or whatever, versus if you're a smaller endeavor, then you're more likely able to make similar risks, but a lot faster. And you're able Correct. to pro- probably gain, and with that risk comes a lot of reward, right? And so that's one of the important parts of just knowing, like what you're saying, just knowing a business, like the back of your hand or knowing a certain industry and then just rinse and repeat, like you're talking about earlier. Yeah. Well, you know, probably one of the most formative moments in my career was back in the billboard business in the early days. I had found some billboard locations that a guy owned. His name was, first name was King. And so... I went to the guy and said, I want to build these billboards on your land. And he says, well, but before you, I will sign your lease. You have to go out and rent the ad space to prove you can do it. So I went out and rented the ad space. I came back to him. I brought him the ad contracts and I brought him the lease. He said, here, sign my lease. He said, no, I've changed my mind now. I'm just going to go ahead and build the signs myself and, and put your advertisers on them. Well, I came out of that meeting so mad that I vowed at that moment I would no longer let other people control my destiny. So I was going to go absolutely apeshiz, <laughs> aggressive to, to get as many signs as I humanly can, because basically I'm in control of my own destiny. Right. And I was letting this guy be in control of it. So I decided I wasn't doing that anymore. So I decided I was going to go strictly based on volume. Volume is going to be the key. I was going to hit more people than anyone had ever hit before to rent land, to rent signs, et cetera. And I, and I kept using that same rationale throughout the billboard industry up to the, its sale and then on into the mobile home park business because vo- volume is what is what gives you safety and sanity and if you read there was a very popular book in the 70s called you can sell anything to anybody i think by joe Girardi, who was the top car salesman in the u.s and if you read the book the whole moral of the book is he was the first guy to focus on volume like he invented direct mail for cars and and cold calling on cars car salesman prior to that guy basically stood around the dealership when someone walked in they said hey you want to look at a car he he was the guy that was actually out there advertising and then everyone stole his ideas but yeah volume volume is key so because kind of segueing that because you mentioned volumes king and you you know i believe you know now own the fifth largest or you're the fifth largest so owner top, of mobile home parks. Because we sell we sell parks and other people buy more. So I, we're safe to say we're in the top ten. I've heard in an interview someone asking whether why don't you go higher? And you kind of was like, no, we're comfortable where we're at, or we I that if we're gonna invest, you know, it's gonna take a heavy heavier multiple and we're taking on so when when do you know kind of when to pull back or when to set kind of settle or kind of know where you're you're good at if that makes sense yeah, see, it, it, it's all if you're a smart person it all ties to your quality of life right mm-hmm. the whole point of life is to have as high a quality of life as you can before you're dead <laughs> so some people get too carried away if you look even at warren buffett right warren buffett got too carried away or warren buffett if you read his books and he's he's got some really smart business theories although he was also incredibly lucky of course that's also a big part of life right. is luck but, you know, in the end, his wife leaves him. They didn't really have ever have any relationship. I don't think he has any relationship with his kids at all. You never see them and or hear of them. His best but friends yeah, recently died, right? Yeah, I mean, right, exactly. Charlie, Charlie Munger died. I mean, basically, Buffett 
devoted his life to, to trying to build this business empire, but did they give him quality of life? I really question it because in interviews today, he says, oh yeah, the most important thing in life is relationships. Well, he sacrificed all of his relationships, spending all that time building Berkshire Hathaway. And you see that over and over again. Look at Jeff Bezos at Amazon, right? I mean, he's so intense on building Amazon. He screws up his marriage. I don't know, again, his relationship with his kids. But at some point you might say, gosh, Bezos, you know, you might want to have scaled back there. You went a little over over the top nutso. And, and that's what happens with people. So, you know, a lot of times you, you decide you're going to build something big, but you really don't want to be too big because too big, you sacrifice other aspects. And I don't know anyone who's actually been a titan of industry who did not have a terrible quality of life, right? When you look at American annals of history, show me anyone who built something giant. I'll show you someone who had no good relationships at all. That's kind of how it works. So, you know, we're, we're focused on trying to have a quality of life with it. Although to be honest with you, we probably went overboard. I'm not sure we'd ever want to grow as big as we had, but that should not be anyone's goal. People should not wake up every day and say, Oh, I want to, I want to own a, you know, a gazillion of this or that. And even on the, on money, if you look at money in the United States, the top 1% is 10 million bucks. So if you wanted to say, Hey, I'm in the top 1%, well, you need to have a $10 million net worth. You don't need a hundred million dollar net worth. You don't need a billion dollar net worth. It's really kind of overkill. Like what is the purpose? If you have 10 million, you can buy a really nice house, right. money in the bank, drive a Ferrari, move on. But it's kind of weird how America has gotten so perverse about money. You know, if you read yeah. books, I read constantly, you know, back in the twenties, people understood this, right? People, they were anchored by living on farms. They moved to the city. They, they weren't trying to like conquer the, the, you know, the, the hoard the gold market. They just wanted to have like a ni nice house in the suburbs, nice, nice, you know, Cadillac convertible, call it a day that this, this obsession with money is, is very modern. I think it stems from a lot from our culture where we like really follow athletes and people who get mm -hmm. crazy amounts of money quickly. They don't tell you the end of the story where they lose it all in the years following. <laughs> they right? come back they up in bankruptcy. <laughs> but Americans are so screwed up. If you ask the average American, what is the top 1% of wealth? I guarantee you they'd say, oh, it has to be at least $100 million. But it's not. It's $10 million. And, and, you know, the top 5%, I believe, is $2 million, And the top 10% top is $1 million. So let's have a reality check. So the moral of everything I just wasted your time with is you don't have to think too big. Right. You want to right. you want to figure out how much money you need to do what you want to do in life, but it should not be your life. And if it mm -hmm. becomes a focus of your life, you've really screwed it up. So and I agree because because there's a lot of that going on where even if you ask, if you ask people today, like how much is a good wage? It's just astronomical compared to like, oh, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. you know, it's I just like they're you probably read the, the average millennial <laughs> said that. The, the minimum amount they would receive to actually make it worthwhile to get up in the morning and show up was 80 grand. Yeah. It's nuts. I mean, I have news, news people who believe that you're crazy. I don't know where these ideas came from. All I can assume is they came from uh, a combination of the media and sports and entertainment and our obsession with sports and entertainment, right? I mean, Patrick right. Mahomes makes 50 million a year. If you're a young person and you see that, you think, oh, 50 million a year, that must be you know, uh, a good wage. So I want at least 10 million a year because heck I'm, I'm maybe 20% as good as Patrick Mahomes. And it, it, people have really lost track and it's, and it's really going to punish America in the end because we're, we've gotten so screwed up about it. Right. It's just going to, there's going to have to not either a reset or just some kind of something that it's just cause this, 
it perpetuates, right? Just because it ends up, you know, getting either getting worse or worse, or eventually you have to de- have a decline in something and it resets the market or resets whatever it is. And then you have to come with, you know, it takes like, uh, I think the, I've, I was uh, reading something or, or maybe it was, I was listening to something where, where sometimes it just takes, you know, 20 or 30 years to change a whole ideal system like whether it's their you know the their their thought process and i think we've kind of already gone through that and and we're in the middle of that where it's just a lot of these even socially or whatever it is there's just a lot of that going on now and and it's even it's crept in and in everywhere and so and it's just interesting just because it used to be like you were saying where the american dream was you know to have the the house with the white picket fence or whatever it is and that's you know, kind of no longer the the same for for most people, or at least at least not of the younger generation or even my generation. Yeah. Although I'll give you an observation on that. I mean, if you look at the United States map, and we've got 300 million people, you have 60 million living on 97 percent of the land mass, and you have 240 million crammed onto three percent. And I live in small town America, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm in that 97 percent of the land mass. And the American dream is is perfectly yep. fine fine down here, right. <laughs> where I am, in uh, the southeast Missouri Ozarks. People still have the house with the picket fence. They they are not obsessed with money. They don't try and one up each other with money. Right. All of those issues come into play into the city. It's almost like a bunch of mm. rats all feeding on each other, trying to kill each other because they're so crammed with so much density. For you know, the the dream is still alive, but you got You got to get out of the city. You got to get about it. You know an hour or more away from the high densities of humans to get your life normal. Right. I agree. Cause that's something where I've, I, cause I'm in a smaller town as well. So I've, I've, and, and you become closer to, you actually have more community in that community than a larger, a larger city, just because I grew up in a farming community where your nearest neighbor was, you know, a half mile down the road, but you knew everything about them. You're going to help them in the middle of the night or do whatever. And then, you know, I think that's a lot of those things kind of lost its way. Like you were talking about, you know, especially generationally where, where you, you know, these generations die out and you lose a lot of these values or these, a lot of these value systems, you know, whether it's hard work or whatever it is. And that kind of goes by the wayside because now it's just like how, you know, a lot of people are looking for the quickest way to make the quickest buck. And it's not, it's not through hard work necessarily. It's like the, you know, how can I do it fast? Or if it, if I can't do it fast and it's not worth it. And that's right. And that's, and I completely agree with you where you were talking about earlier where, you know, that's what we do is consume as, you know, you know, and that's kind of what we're, a lot of people are dialed in now. They want their instant coffee, their instant, whatever, you know, cause that patience and that's what got you, your wealth is being patient and, you know, presenting those opportunities and being persistent, like you mentioned. And, and can you t- talk a little bit about, you know, kind of one of those, one of your biggest value lessons that you've learned throughout your 30 years in commercial real estate and how those lessons helped you, helped you in your approach of investing? Sure. Yeah. The, the, the one, one key item I found in doing the billboard business and the mobile home park business is the concept of doing what we call win-win deal making. Mm-hmm. which is opposite to win-lose deal-making. So right. win-win, you're happy, the seller is happy. You know, we try not to rip people off. We try not to go in and lie and claim the sewer line has collapsed, the water line is shot when, in fact, it is not. 
a lot of that is from working with, you know, when you do particularly the mobile home park business, you're working a lot with moms and pops. They may not have great business skills, but they're very astute. And if you're lying to them, they can sense it and they won't work with you. And if I look at it, around at people in the mobile home park business who have prevailed and the same in the billboard business, it's people who, again, understand the fact that you can't push old, wealthy people around. And so much American negotiation, so much of American business books, if you read them, are all about win-lose, right? I mean, if you look at uh, Donald Trump's book, The Art of the Deal, what was the art of the right. deal? The art of the deal was win-lose deal-making, right? It was tie a property up under contract, tell the guy you're going to build a building next door to it and block the guy's view, scare him to death, get the price down, and, and go forward. And so, and, that's, and that is a way business can be done. And, but unfortunately that's the obsession with most Americans when they think I'm going to get into business, they read a bunch of garbage like that. And the problem is that, that, that doesn't work. Right. And there are very few books out there on win-win deal-making for some reason that's considered to be weak or something. I don't know what doesn't sell well. So a lot of people enter, they, they could be good, but they mm -hmm. enter with the wrong attitude. Right. So that, that's a, a problem. Another thing I've learned from from business is that, you know, everything revolves around knowledge. So many people get into stuff and they don't learn about it. It's bizarre. People will learn everything about some stupid video game like Call of Duty or something. But you would think that that same guy, when he goes into business or woman, would at least put in the effort they spent on Call of Duty learning how their business runs. It drives me nuts when you ask people about businesses and they don't have any scientific knowledge at all. It's crazy. So right. you know, if you're going to be in something, you want to be an expert at it. And by expert, you have to have the knowledge base of how, how it all works, right? Mm -hmm. And in my, my generation, particularly back in the 70s, if you worked in a summer job, uh, the whole point was you were kind of like a student of how the business worked. And by being there in a summer job, then you might go back another summer and then you might go there after college because back then people worked for one employer their entire life. Right. So you right. were trying to learn today. People, instead of learning, try and shortcut it. Right. By just basically BSing or jumping around or things like that. And they don't really have a mastery. Mm -hmm. And so if you really want to succeed at something, you have to be an expert at it. You need to know the whole history of that business and exactly how every piece of it runs and apply science to everything and read everything you can about it because that that's what makes you have the ability to be successful. But a lot of times people don't, don't put any knowledge in the final thing I'll, I'll tell you, which I learned back, you know, I'm a, I'm a car nut, which you may also be because in small town America, if you don't have a classic car or <laughs> respect classic cars, you are ostracized, right? So I had a, one time a 1940 Cadillac model 62, because I always liked those giant old, it's like I need a railroad car kind of giant black looking cars. And so I bought this thing and it had no seat belts because those, they hadn't, they didn't have seat belts back in 1940. So I went to this garage to have a guy put seat belts in it. And when I pull up to this garage, this is a guy that worked on old cars. Out in front was one of the most expensive cars that exists. It was a Cadillac boat tail speedster, the one where you have a, a varnished wood deck on the top of the car. And you have two different compartments. You had two people sit in one compartment with their own windshield. And behind oh, wow. that was another compartment with its own windshield, right? Crazy looking, gigantic cars. And 
So, and they're, and they're about a half a million bucks restored. So here was in front of the guy's garage. So I go to the guy and said, dude, how do, how do you, how do you own, no offense, but you know, how do you own that car? And he told me, oh yeah, well, see, I always wanted one of those things, but I got no money. So I would comb through every ad, every, every possible resource of where you might find an, an old Cadillac. And lo and behold, I saw an ad that says Cadillac in pieces on floor of garage. And I went over to them and the lady said, yeah, I want to get this thing out of here. My husband was a car nut. He restored this or something. I don't know what it is, but it's just a pile of parts. And can you, I'll, you can have it for free if you get it out of the garage. So he took, took all the parts and then he assembled them and that was the car. And the bottom line is, if you're really scrounging, if you're really working hard in every respect, you can get anything, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I, I've bought so many things over the years at literally a penny on the dollar because people did not even know what it was because they were uneducated about business and they had no clue. But if you if you have the persistence and the fiery passion to get something, oh, you're going to get it. Right. I would be way more afraid of someone who had no money as a competitor, Hmm. but was really dialed in than someone who had lots of capital and even had some knowledge, but had no passion. You're not going to work it. You're not going to make the calls. You're not going to go meet with people. You're not going to scrounge. You're not going to look everywhere. And so that's like a really important trait. And and again, it's something that most people have somehow lost. I don't know what happened, but people today, they, they have lost the value of being a wild Tasmanian devil on effort because that is that that is what really makes you dangerous when you combine education with an insane desire the the person with the big desire they're always going to win they're going to wear you down until they ultimately win right but that's that so when someone says to me hey i want to get into business i got no money you don't need money what you need is you you need to be in the right niche with a passion to do it and understand how it works you'll be fine but it's not, it's not money. You can't buy your way into business successfully. So do you think that that's a certain quality that you're, that you just have naturally, or is that something that you could develop or is that, uh, or is that, what do you think that well, comes I, from really? Yeah, I, I think, I think, I think it can be developed, but at a certain point it's kind of like fight or flight, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you have, you have to want it bad enough to, to, be willing to do it. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie because many young people have not, but there's a movie called To Hell and Back with Audie Murphy. Have you ever seen I that movie? Seen, I haven't seen that. Okay. Audie, Audie Murphy was the most decorated soldier in World War II, most decorated soldier in American history. He single-handedly caught or captured two or 300 Germans. And if you watch the movie or if you read the book, and no one ever reads the book, the movie was written by him and he actually stars in the movie. But you'll see what happens is he reaches a breaking point in every battle where he goes nuts. So he would normally, he'd be pinned down under fire and then he would snap and he would methodically then take off his backpack and all of his stuff and grab his rifle and just go nuts. And it always ended up because he was super lucky and they never hit him. He would then capture the machine gun nest. He would capture the battalion because he really was almost on a suicide mission. Because right. he was fed up and he wasn't going to mm-hmm. take it anymore. And so he just didn't give a rat's rear. He was just going to grab his rifle and he was either going to kill you or you were going to kill him. But he wasn't going to hang around anymore. Right. And most people have to re- you have to reach that level. It's like alcoholics mm-hmm. where they hit bottom and then they decide not to drink anymore. You got you to reach a level where so, – so, yes, it's inside of everyone. The, the, but you have, you have to tap into it somehow. Right. 
So I right. think it's, it's not a question of do you have the ability? Yeah, you have the ability, but but can can you do it? It's like it's like the movie Waterboy with Adam Sandler. Right? I mean, he's able to take take and psych himself up and use his <laughs> anger and rage to, for good. Right. That's the same kind of deal. Yeah, just how you channel it and whether finding that place or whatever, and then channeling that energy to whatever effort goal you, you have that you're that you mentioned earlier. And that, I love your advice where it's just you know looking for the win wins, you know, because a lot of people may not be looking for those, especially especially you know people are trying to get rich quick or or looking for the fastest way out or whatever, because you never know when you may be relying on someone else for that you know that may come to haunt you if you're doing a win lose situation, right? Yep. Just because you, eventually you're going to, eventually you're going to wear, wear everyone thin or they're, you know, you're working. Some of these are niche markets, you know, where there's not a whole lot of connections or so you, you can't really have that mentality of, of that yep. win lose. Right. And so it's just, it's just from, I would assume it'd just be the better practice to do the win-win. And then like you mentioned, I love that analogy of, of being scrappy and, and looking for, you know, your friend that was, you know, had that car, the car parts you basically get those for free. And it's just one of those things where you were talking about earlier, being patient, being persistent, you know, and having knowledge and, and, and spending that time. Cause I think that's something that a lot of people, don't value is is time necessarily this just because they if it's just not if it's if if they don't get their reward instantaneously or pretty close then they don't they don't you know that's not worth it to them and so i right. think it's you know and it's kind of sad it's not i'm not saying everyone's like that but that's kind of generally a lot of people that that are around my age or younger that's kind of their mentality and and yeah. i have I've been lucky to have friends that don't necessarily share that value, but you know, it, yeah. But well, you but, know, if you if you read read books back in the nineteen twenties and even earlier, how people used their time, mm-hmm. it had nothing. It's in no way similar to how we are today at all. Right. Right. So that back in the nineteen twenties, if I worked at a company, I worked there six days a week, not five. Five is a modern invention. It was six days a week, and you were only off on Sunday. If you read how many hours they worked, it was a 12-hour day. It wasn't an eight-hour day. Right. It's a later invention. So the average American was paid in 72 hours a week at his job. It's almost twice what we do today. But the weird ending is if you look at you know seven times 24 and then take away the 72 and you take away the sleep, you still had a bunch of time. Right. Back then, right? They work in... 12 out 12 hours in the day but heck there's 24 hours a day you sleep eight so they still had four hours to do whatever they wanted that's a lot of time so for some reason as a nation we started expanding this free time concept to where it's our dominant use of time look at the average american right i mean you, you're spending your 40 hours a week is a fraction of your time right well, maybe maybe at most a third of your time less than yeah. that and well, where did that come from? I mean, yep. that, it, it morphed, I think, through HR departments and other stuff, right? But that's not how Americans were built. And most people have let that expand and take over their life, and it ruins it. I mean, I, I don't know about you. I, I don't watch television almost at all. Like, the only thing I watch on television is I will watch the news maybe for 30 minutes daily. I'll definitely watch any football game. But 
you know, that's it. So I'm, I'm spending my time either working or doing stuff with friends or family or mm-hmm. taking walks, just do something with right. your time. This idea of Americans where they just sit on a sofa 10 or 12 hours a day, it's demented. It's not only unhealthy. It, I don't even understand its historic roots. It, it's, it, right. that is a modern invention. And when you look at the greatest generation and you say, well, God, how are they so successful? How are they so good? Cause they literally did build America. Like almost everything that, that you see anywhere you go in America was built by that one category of people. They was all right. built between the twenties and the sixties, right? Yep. It's and they worked all the time. Right. And then we're dealing with the fallout now with the infrastructure, how it is or how it's set up. Cause it was built right. by them. And now, now we're, we haven't done anything with it. Cause I mean, we may have made some, some improvements, but not holistically changed. You know, we made changes to, to that same system. It's just the same systems that that's there, you know, you're exactly correct. So that's, that's what makes everything so very odd today is our society has become so, well, it's just kind of sad because, you know, life is like this giant, magnificent buffet and people are starving to death because even though there's all this stuff you could do, they don't do it. That's, that's, that's the tragedy. It's not like they they can't do it. There are restrictions on them doing it for whatever reason they elect not to make the most use of their time, not to learn about what they do, not to put in any energy. And I don't really understand that. And then that ties back to what my earlier comment on, you know, if, if we all have this basic need to be attractive and successful, what happened to that need? Is that what went out the window? I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the issue. That's it's still alive in small town America. I just don't understand right. what happened in the city. No, I, I agree. I 100% agree. Just because there's the values, I think just values system just changed or shifted. And it's just gone, well, gone to an extreme. And so now it's, I think it's coming back because you get these, you know, these pendulum swings in society or government or whatever it is, where it just ends up correcting itself. But every time it swings the other way, it swings, for me, it seems like it swings harder the other way until it, yep. you get this reset and then it comes then you kind of get this, hopefully this middle ground. And then, yeah, because you get, it's those peaks and valleys like you're talking about. And those, those are the times where you can actually benefit, you know, if you're talking about business or investing, you know, those are the times you could really start benefiting from those sort of things. Um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, because you, I noticed you have several uni- universities, whether it's the commercial real estate, you also have mobile home, you have billboard, you have RV parks. What inspired you to create these and what, what are they about exactly? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Back, back in the, gosh, what year are we talking? By the mid 2000s, my partner, Dave Reynolds owned a mobile home park store, RV park store, all those early listing services of properties for sale. And he was trying to get some books or things to go on there. This is before we were even in partnership on buying mobile home parks. I was speaking at a uh, conference. He was also there. And we decided we would start writing little books for fun to put on the website just to try and educate people on the industry, that there had to be some benefit to people actually understanding what it was. So my early books were mostly humor-oriented. I think my first title was I'm With Stupid, uh, the 50 dumbest things I'd ever seen in a mobile home park. Days were accounting-oriented. We kept writing the books, and we had fun with it. And then over time, people wanted more information. So we kept adding on and then they wanted us to like just talk 
in person on it. We started doing boot camps and such, but it's all been organically grown as a hobby. We just have one, one, one person running it. And that's uh, Dave's son, Brandon. So that's, that's what that's been. But there's been a lot of benefits from, from doing that. We've got to know a lot of moms and pops because most of our audience are mom and pop owners of mobile home parks. So that's, that's been a positive. And we think that we've kind of pushed the industry forward because before us, there was nothing positive on the industry at all. First positive article on the industry was the interview I did with New York Times back in 2015, I believe. So we think we've done some good to educate people because the mobile home park business particularly has nothing but negative stigma attached mm -hmm. to it. Yep. But, you know, when we say university, it's almost tongue in cheek university. It's basically it's like the the there used to be a show on PBS called Car Talk. I don't know if you ever mm -hmm. saw or heard of the show yep. Car Talk. Yep. But Car Talk was one in which people would call up and they'd say, hey, my car won't start. And they'd be like, OK, well. You know, did you check these two wires? Did you do this? Did you do that? Oh my gosh, my car started. And, okay, <laughs> go on to the next caller now. That that's kind of how we do. We just have we have fun with it because if you're doing stuff, it's fun talking about what you do. So that's that's kind of how it's been. It's basically just been you know two guys helping people be successful niches that we do. And mo most of what we do is more pessimistic than optimistic. So people out of the pitfalls and stupid things we did that were really, really stupid. Uh, and then also sh we, we've tried to apply science to industries where there was no science prior. Mm -hmm. So it used to be in the mobile home park business. Nobody knew, gee, would this park work? Would it not work? Could you turn it around? Could you not? We, we've tried to answer all that with science, with different manuals and software we've developed and stuff like that. So that's what it really is. It's basically, it's just applying science to the industry. That's great. Because again, because your, your portfolio seems like it's increased, but it sounds like you're saying like you just found a, a sweet spot or a quality of life that you're looking for. And you even mentioned it might have grown too big. So I mean, would you, would you have tailored it back or not gone as big as you wanted or what, 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 I mean, what kind of, what's kind of well, your see, thought process behind that? Is yeah, we saw a huge opportunity starting in about 2010 because coming out of the Great Recession, you know, everyone hit the skids and no one really appreciated the mobile home park industry at all. So we were able to buy parks at ridiculously low prices, which were still win-win because those low prices are all that mom and pop really wanted. But, you know, we rode that entire interest rate decline masterfully because the interest rates just kept going down to zero and stood there for forever, right? They've been, they've been at nearly zero for 14 straight years, which no one ever thought would occur. Every, every, every year we would assume we would not buy any more parks because we thought interest rates would, would, would go sharply up and they never did. And so fortunately, by the time interest rates did go sharply up, we had ceased buying almost all of our stuff. So, but we saw the opportunities being so big, we couldn't, we couldn't help ourselves with it. You know, today we still buy mobile home parks. We're a much more slower methodology. We're doing probably about a park a month. Whereas at one point during the 2010 era, we were doing up to one or two parks a week. So it's a whole, 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 whole different kind of deal today than it was then. But right. even then, it begs the question, did you really need to grow that big? And I don't really know the answer to that. You, you never know in life it, how life is until you're dead. 
Right, it's hindsight. Hard, hard to say how the movie turns out until you actually fall over dead, and then they say it. There's some famous philosopher. I don't remember the book or the name of the philosopher. I want to say Socrates. The you know a king calls him in and says, "Who's the happiest person in the world?" And he says, "Oh, it was you know Larry Jones and or something." And the king's like, "What? What do you mean? Why him?" Well, because you know he he his family really liked him. He had a lot of fun. He was successful and. The king was outraged and said, why, well, I'm the happiest. And he says, well, no, we don't know that for a fact yet because you're still alive. And so he banishes him from the kingdom and he goes to work for another king somewhere. And then years later, he's on uh, some boat where you have those guys rowing that are all slaves and they're all chained. And, and he sees the king there. You know, the king's had his eyes gouged out. He's there <laughs> rowing the thing. And he says, hey, king, you know, what's up? The king's like, you know, man, Socrates, you were totally nailed it. Because right after I banished you, my kingdom got overrun. I got captured. They poked my eyes out, and I've been rowing on this boat for ten years now. And that, so I, I wasn't the happiest person. So Socrates' position right. was: your life changes. There's no finality to all your dead. Yep, I I agree. And so, because I also have a I have a friend that he's invested in several RV parks as well, and he said the biggest thing that difficulty that he's had with owning RV parks is just the vacancies. And, and so he actually gone to, instead of just renting those spaces out, he's gone to like, you know, where it's longer leases for a lot of these RVers where they're full timers. And so they have them stay on their property. Is that something, what kind of, what kind of things do you guys do for, cause I know a lot of RV parks can be seasonal and there's just a lot, there's just different risks because you're basically yep. dealing with home on wheels for some people you've tapped, you've tapped into one of the biggest trends in the rv park industry right so what happens is that as a nation we've run out of low-cost places to live i mean that's no shock affordable housing right. is one of our biggest problems but people are now realizing hey why can't i just live in my rv full-time you've got millions and millions of americans who own rvs people often downsize when they get older they sell their house off why buy another house you already own the rv you own it free and clear just move into the stupid thing I know a guy who was a professor at Lindenwood University in St. Louis area, and he had a really nice 5,000 square foot house out like in Chesterfield, which is a nice suburb of St. Louis. And he also owned an RV. And he suddenly announced to everyone, hey, my wife is dead. My, kid, my kids have grown up. I'm selling the house. And then people were horrified. We said, I'm moving into my RV. But it made complete sense. So now he lives in his RV, has almost no cost of living at all. And therefore he can spend all of his money, his pension and everything else traveling or doing whatever he wants to do. So people have finally realized in a big way, hey, I can live in my RV. Well, that's a seismic change in the RV industry because it's traditionally been temporary. Average RV in, a mo in an RV park is a 14 day tenancy. But now you have people going there saying, I want to live here forever. And for the RV park owner, that's great news, right? If that right. person lives there forever, then you get rent not for 14 days. You get rent for 365 days. You don't even have to advertise. Right. So you're going to see a whole lot more of that. We're seeing that not only in RV parks, but even in mobile home parks where people want to bring in the RV. And it makes complete and total logical sense because, among other issues, there's no American negative stigma on RV. Unlike mobile home parks where... You know, if you live in a mobile home, if you were to go to your class reunion and they say, where do you live? I live in a mobile home. People are like, oh, man, he hit the skids. What, 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 how terrible. But if you say, I live in an RV, there are people who would say, oh, that's cool. How does that work? Right. How can I do that? Because RVs right. have a very good thing. So, yeah, we're seeing that 
where we have people that are coming in and staying in there full-time. We also have RV parks where people are bringing in park models, typically, which are 400 square foot and smaller units that fit on RV spaces. And they're coming in seasonally, but they're paying rent year-round. Right. But I think that's that's a big shift. And you're seeing a lot more of that. I'm even seeing seasonal RV parks that are now have a seasonal section and then the full-time section. And they shut off the seasonal section and they let the full-time run year round. Right. So yes, that's one of the hot trends right now. Yeah, because that's something I've noticed with, because we that's what we specifically do with, because I work with a company called Curb and Turf, where we get landowners to open up their property for RVers. Just because, mm-hmm. you know, where a lot of people, especially all, even with COVID, RV sales went went up just because a lot of people, people were telling you to stay in, stay in. And then all of a sudden people were just like cramming to get out, but still want to be isolated, still have their own space. So the RV, RV sales shot up and so, so much that they couldn't keep up with the demand. And so, and then like you mentioned, RVs are not, weren't meant to house people for a lifetime. So a lot of them are cheaply built and, and that's just nothing, you know, it's nothing against our, it's just, they weren't planned on, they didn't, no one had that foresight of have this happening or whatever. Cause a lot of people are turning to our, you know, RV full time just because they value, you know, those experiences of traveling and ha- living on the road or ha- and, and maybe having a home base where, whether it's an RV park or whatever it is, and then still have those options to go where they want and still have the comforts of home. Um, so it's just an, an interesting industry just because it it's, it's changed quite a bit, even with the last yes, couple of years. And, and, and it's continuing to morph even now. I mean, it's, yep. that, that industry is in a revolution of its evolution right now because the, 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 you've, you've got the two lines crossing between the affordable housing demand and people waking up to the fact that you can live on an RV. It's, it's similar to, you know, for a while back in the 70s, people realized you could live on boats full time. So, for example, back when I was at Stanford right. out in California, there were people who were saying, well, I want to live in San Francisco. I'll just live in a, in a boat. They go buy a 60-foot yacht and moor it by the Golden Gate Bridge. The mooring was free, and wow. they were living like a king on no money. And back then, in fact, when students would talk about what are you going to do when you graduate, it was a very common theme. Oh, I'm going to go out and buy a you know, 60-foot Chris Craft wooden yacht for twenty grand and moor it somewhere in California and row row in on my dinghy or keep it in a marina and even today it's not a bad housing option right, right. if you look at joe manchin in dc where does he live he lives on right. he calls it a houseboat it's a yacht <laughs> right but it, but you know you can buy yachts if you go to some of these websites like james edition or something you can buy large yachts today for under 100 grand right so it's not a bad idea but but you know rv is in the same kind of boat now people are saying well i can live in that yeah. And then you're dealing with upkeep and, and there's just certain things that you're going to have to deal with just owning something like that. But it's the same thing if you're to own a home, right? There's just certain yeah. upkeep that you're going to have to keep up with any living, you know, if you're going to li- be living on anything full time, it's just normal wear and tear and That's certain correct. things, especially if you're traveling with your home, you're probably going to have more, yep. more wear and tear on that. Yep. You know. So I mean, now that we're, I mean, what do you see right now as far as investing or opportunities that people, if they're looking to get into something like what you're doing, whether it's, you know, owning a mobile park or starting an RV park or having storage units? Because I have a lot of friends that, especially during COVID, were 
buying up storage units or developing these units and stuff because that was something that's that peaked really well <laughs> and so it did really well and so what what's something that you what kind of advice would you give someone if they're just trying to get their foot in the door well you know the reason we have preferred mobile home parks over the other niches is it goes back to the moat because they haven't let you build new mobile home parks since 1970 so we have no no new supply no competition on it so that's our favorite niche second position is probably rv park because even though there's no set moat to it there's still a lot of difficulty getting a loan to build an rv park building anything today is really really hard right probably our least favorite niche of everything you just mentioned is self-storage just because you can get a loan pretty rapidly and it's the the industry itself is very very overbuilt in fact, you're, you're, yep. it's, it's entering a shakedown phase now, similar to office and retail, people yep. way overbuilt. I don't know who the survivors will be. It'll be the ones who have the lowest amount of debt. So it'll be the ones that, you know, built them a long time ago or built them super cheap. But in the mobile home park industry, we're still very fragmented. We've got 44,000 parks in the U.S. Only 4,000 of those are institutionally owned. So 40,000 out of 44,000 are still mostly with moms and pops. Self-storage is three times more aggregated, so you also have that, that issue with it. RV is similar to mobile home park. You, you've got a predominance of moms and pops. And when you're trying to buy stuff properly, that's what you want, right? You want to buy from the original moms and pops because you always know there's room to fix stuff uh, economically that they weren't there. They were not marketing it hard enough, so you can increase occupancy you can increase rents, you can cut costs, right. buy them cheap, and often they'll even carry the paper on it. So we, we still think there's lots of life left in uh, mobile home park and RV park storage. Uh, there's not so much life in it. It's just there's going to be this giant mega shakedown in it, and, and that will create value because you'll be able to buy things for probably less than construction cost. Right. Billboards issue today is just scale. It was an issue when I was in it, but most people who do billboards, it's strictly as a hobby. The average person who owns billboards might own five or 10 of them. It might make, you know, 10 grand a year to 50 grand a year. That's kind of mm. that, that sweet spot. But out of all the niches, mobile home park is the one I like the best. Okay. Perfect. Well, that's great. Cause I think that's something, cause a lot of people that we, that our audience they, they have lots of land or sometimes they don't know what to do with it or they're, or they maybe have extra income because they're, they have, you know, whether it's passive or whatever, so they want to reinvest in something else or look into different markets. So that's really great advice. So that's something, something I've noticed really with obviously with the self-storage or storage units itself, just because that's something that exploded and then it's just, it's, yeah, <laughs> my friends are, <laughs> a lot of my friends are just like, well, <laughs> they're they're looking to sell or they're looking to yeah it's just one of those things where it just wasn't a it was good at the idea yeah, at the time it's just like sometimes they just don't necessarily they just go with the trend right and so yep. they're not really thinking they don't have the foresight or i guess the long-term vision of of what's to come either and sometimes you yeah, can't see what, what yeah one problem with storage is that storage is a luxury Right. You don't need it, right? right? And and the industry using their own PR people, and let's be honest, public storage and extra space, just a very few people control most of that industry. And they control almost all of its informational content, 
right? So they have entire giant departments of people writing millions and millions of articles of how great self-storage is, which I'm sure tie back to these publicly traded companies that are trying to promote the idea that, hey, buy stock in public storage because everything's great. And the, and the mantra always was, it was something that does well in good times and bad, but had not been tested because the last time that we had bad was 2008. And they've built billions of square feet since 2008. So no one really knew what happens right. on the next recession, but the early stats are terrible, right? You're already seeing right. about 10% reduction in occupancy and 10% reduction in rates. If you add those two together and you take your revenue down 20%, in most cases that equals bankruptcy. Right. And right. Cause that's about, you know, given the way most loans are built and almost all that has debt on it, you can't service your right. note payment. So the jury is very much out on that. And I, and I was suspicious of it, you know, even back in the day when people were like, oh yeah, this is the greatest thing of all time because it had never actually been tested in modern times. See, mobile home parks have been tested over and over because it's a right. static supply, been through every great recession. We know exactly how it performs in the recession. Same with RV parks, right? But you take, you take a product that, that a very limited supply and you, and you stress test it and then you go wacko with it, right? You just build a trillion of them it's not going to have the same result. Right. And I think you're seeing that now. They're all going to feed on it. I see it right, myself going up I-55 to St. Louis. I see signs everywhere. You know, rent one month here, two free. Next guy is rent one month, three free. Next guy is one, rent one, four free. You know, probably next time I go up there, we rent one, get one year free. Right. Right. It, it's, it's, it's such a feeding frenzy because whenever you outstrip with supply and demand, it's, it's just death. Yep. It's just horrible. And I've been in yep. there in the billboard business you know, back in L.A., back in the day when everyone was broke and you'd be like, yeah, I'm the 65th vacant sign on the left. When people say, where's your billboard? You know, that's that's just nuts. And right. so, yeah, that, I'm afraid that's where storage is going to end up. OK, well. Again, Frank, I appreciate everything that um, we talked about today, because there's tons of information. I think a lot of our audience could could latch on to or gain from just from what from what you talked about and can you share any exciting projects or anything that any initiative that you might have in the future or where people could find you or where's the best place to, sure. to get your information? Yeah. The best place to find me is if you go to mhu.com, which stands for mobilehomeuniversity.com. You can find, I, I, I put content on there every week, <clears throat> a lot of it. And it tells you different things we see going on. I, I can tell you right now that 2024 will be one of the, most interesting years maybe in American history because you have all this uncertainty, which is all firmly resolved by the end of the year, right? So by 1231, we will know, is it Trump or Biden? We will know, did we have a recession or not? We'll know, did interest rates finally go down? Did Ukraine win or lose? Is the Middle East war solved or did it expand? All, it's, like, it's like all of these giant Alfred Hitchcock movies simultaneously <laughs> with this giant culmination by the last day of the year. I've never seen a year like this in, uh, ever. I mean, in most years you have one topic right. that, that might be resolved. But now it seems like between COVID and interest rates, we've been in the worst horror movie ever since about 2020. I mean, this has just been the most screwed up, nutso country on the planet. So at least we're going to have some resolution. People may not like the endings of all the different right. movies, 
but at least you're going to have the endings and you don't have to worry about it anymore. Right. Right. You know, you're not, by the end of next year, you're not going to have to worry, well, is Jerome Powell going to raise the rates again and how much or, right. so I'm, I'm looking forward to 24 because I just want resolution. I just want to see how all this stuff ends. I agree. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. There's just been a crazy year and hopefully, I mean, a lot of people can, I mean, with the craziness, if the, they seek those opportunities where they're able to, you know, start a business, scale their own business, or, you know, make those sacrifices. But again, something that you're been echoing, echoing this whole episode is just kind of, you know, being patient, learning your craft, you know, this, this, you know, really those, the greatest generation values that we need probably need to go back to. And I think a lot of those people are realizing that. Cause I think I've even seen that with some, some of the lo- younger generation where they're kind of going back to those roots. And I, I hope I see yeah. more of those people, more of that out there, just because that's something that really helped build America. And especially when we're, we had a year of this chaos. That's something we need really need to get back to, to those values where we have a good foundation and we have something to build off. Yep. Totally agree. Well, I really do appreciate it, Frank. We'll go ahead and link everything uh, that you mentioned with mobile, mobile parking or mobile home university. And then also anything else that you're involved with, we'll put those in the show notes and every, anywhere that people listen to this podcast. So we appreciate you joining us today. You bet. Thanks a lot. Perfect. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the recurring plot presented by Curb and Turf. Curb and Turf works like Airbnb, but we help RVers to find land where they can park when they're traveling. Make more money from your land. Please visit CurbandTurf.com to list your property.